The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. When harm does occur, having a broader range of, of interventions, so it could be a warning label, it could be a timeout, it could be removing access to a feature but still allowing someone to have an account. All those different interventions are interesting and useful ways to try and improve the overall health of the platform. And I think one of the, the important things we want to protect as policymakers are, are drafting new rules is protecting that ability to come up with innovative and, and different ways of trying to improve behavior rather than focusing on this, if it's bad, you must remove it. I'm Quenta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 21st, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Nick Pickles, the Director of Global Public Policy Strategy at Twitter. We asked him on to discuss a new paper just released by Twitter, Protecting the Open Internet. Regulatory Principles for Policymakers, which sketches out in broad strokes the company's vision for what global technology policy should look like. The paper discusses a range of issues, from transparency to everyone's favorite new topic, algorithms. As a platform that's often mentioned in the same breath as Google and Facebook, but is far smaller, with hundreds of millions of users rather than billions, Twitter stands at an interesting place in the social media landscape. So we had a lot to talk about. How does Twitter define the open internet exactly? How much guidance is the company actually giving to policymakers? And what does the director of global public policy strategy do all day? It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 21st. Twitter's head of public policy explains the company's advice to regulators. I'm wondering if we could just start by getting you to tell us a little bit about what your job actually is. So what does a public policy team do at a company like Twitter? So I think the public policy team at a company like Twitter is, it's really kind of like, you know, we spend a lot of our time talking to policymakers, talking to civil society, talking to regulators to understand their concerns, the challenges that they're dealing with, and then working with our colleagues in the company, uh, be they product, uh, trust and safety, uh, legal, to be part of the solution to those public policy challenges. I think one of the uh, the things that you know every team at Twitter uh, has a perspective and has something to contribute to thinking about how we solve some of these big challenges. And some of them affect Twitter in different ways to our peers. But really making sure that when we're engaging with policymakers, we're coming armed with with solutions and also recognizing the unique way that Twitter can actually help policymakers in many of their objectives and their work. So the reason that we'd asked you to come on is that Twitter just released a paper titled Protecting the Open Internet, Regulatory Principles for Policymakers. And to start off, I wanted to ask, what is the open internet? Because you you have a lot of different characteristics that you assign to it throughout the paper. You point to competition among companies, intermediary liability protection, so Section 230 for listeners who are familiar with that as an example, innovation choice for users, the free flow of data. What What is the open internet? What sort of 
pulls together all of those different things? Well, I think it's not something we can take for granted, which is one of the motivations for doing the paper. Um, for us, the, the open internet is it's far bigger. And, and often we, when we're having these conversations, it's kind of easy to think of the internet as being four or five enormous tech companies who are, as you say, regularly in headlines, in hearings. And and the internet is the, the architecture and the kind of the infrastructure that enables services like Twitter to exist, but is, is far, far bigger and far more foundational to communications around the world. And so when we're thinking about the paper, you know, we're recognizing that there are different perspectives coming through at a global level about how you balance the rights of individual states versus uh, multi-stakeholder decision-making to make governance decisions about the internet. And there's a real you know, issue uh, that is being talked about more, I think, in, in different forums, that the, the open internet, which is, is global, is accessible to people, uh, is built on things like competition, underpinned by open standards that allow people and services to interact. And that is under threat, and it's under threat from, from a variety of reasons, whether that's uh, state actors who are increasingly seeking to control from commercial centralization, from increasing challenges to how we balance some of the pressures we talk about in the paper. And so I think, you know, as, as Twitter, we often find ourselves talking about trade-offs. And I think one of the reasons that we, we published this paper was as policymakers around the world are thinking about how to resolve some of these trade-offs in, in their policy discussions, what are the grounding principles we actually want to think about as being important to protect? Uh, because is there any number of policy solutions that we discuss and the unintended consequences of those solutions can actually be to undermine the open internet. So we call out things like, you know, some of the language around digital sovereignty, uh, the increasing rise in uh, employees of companies being used as leverage to, to enforce national content standards. But we also talk about the, the you know, the erosion of, of user choice and control over things like algorithms. So it's a huge issue and it's one that we think it's important to have our perspective out there for, for people to discuss, debate, and hopefully uh, find useful. So I wanted to ask a little bit about who the audience for this paper was, because you just mentioned a number of threats to the open internet from states around the world, which certainly there is like, a, and we've been discussing this on the podcast in a number of different forums uh, from India to Russia, around the world where exactly as you say, you know, data sovereignty and um, these hostage laws where employees of uh, tech companies are coming under threat. But I'm wondering if they're the people that you're speaking to when you're writing this paper, because I find it hard to believe. I mean, maybe you're more optimistic than I am that they will pick up this uh, very persuasive document and go, you're right, um, this isn't what we should be doing. Who, who are you speaking to when you're, when you're writing this document? Well, I, th I think there's, there's a whole range of different people who are talking about tech regulation and tech's role in society. And I think that the, the idea of the paper is it's, it's very much you know, intended to be useful in regulatory and legislative conversations. But actually, you know, I think the, the audience of this is people who are interested in in solving problems. And I think one of the one of the trends that that certainly is going on around the world is that solutions may seem a lot easier when they're in a press release or they're in a soundbite until you actually start digging into the consequences and the detail and the trade-offs involved. And so the paper really hope it is useful to to anybody who actually wants to be part of the conversation about how we uh, we we shape regulation to protect the benefits, social, economic, political, of technology services, and at the same time, 
address the harms that are manifesting themselves online. And I think that conversation has to be bigger than just lawmakers. We need civil society at the table. Uh, we need diverse global voices at the table. And we need citizens um, who use these services every day and are part of the, the public conversation to be there as well. So I'm hoping it's, uh, it's widely read and, and wildly useful. So let's dig in then to the five principles that the document goes through. And the first one is about the global nature of the open internet and the need for open standards and the protection of human rights, which is something we've been sort of touching on already. But, you know, your document calls out uh, governments that throttle or block the internet and, and risk isolating citizens, as well as, you know, as we were talking about data sovereignty and things like that. And one of the things that you focus on in there as well is the tendency of policymakers to seek extraterritorial application of laws. And you're arguing that that threatens the global internet because it encourages a race to the bottom. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a bit, because in some ways, it seems to me like you could read it one way that a single set of global rules is actually a more open internet because, you know, there's this other sort of line of discourse that with increasing local laws, we're sort of starting to see the splinter net. And so I'm wondering how you see that tension playing out. And, you know, I think Twitter itself, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, seeks to have one set of global principles rather than um, necessarily applying things country by country. And so why why would governments not want to do the same thing or should not want to do the same thing? Well, and this, this goes to the heart of this question of a, a global internet is the very nature of a global internet um, has been built on multi-stakeholder, you know, government, industry, civil society collaborating to solve the uh, challenges that a global infrastructure raises. And so, you know, something like the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty uh, framework, which I know you've discussed previously in the context of things like the Cloud Act, and those are good examples of how governments working together to solve cross-border legal issues creates durable legal frameworks for the future protects rule of law, protects due process. And most importantly, and this is something that we talk about a lot in the paper, is it's absolutely right that governments are resolving those legal framework questions together rather than pushing decisions about um, resolving those conflicts of law onto private services. And so I think, you know, this is something where, you know, we we as, as Twitter, we've been working with the Keep It On Coalition you know, calling out the rise in blocking and throttling that's happening around the world. But we also need governments to play their part in holding countries to account who do use these policies, increasingly use these policies. And that's why I think, you know, when we talk about how we solve these these challenges, it's not just going to be industry, it's not just going to be governments, we need civil society in the room, because as we, you know, as we build global norms around how to reconcile different cultural standards on content, countries having different perspectives. Should a country be able to say that this is not permitted in our country, therefore is not permitted in other countries? Those kind of of principles of international law that are being challenged by a global communications infrastructure. But we firmly believe that the economic and political and social benefits that that global open internet brings are absolutely worth making sure that we have some hard conversations with governments to try and resolve some of these challenges rather than, I think, you know, the the worst case scenario of a race to the bottom where you just have a a series of intranets uh, that occasionally talk to each other through very careful guarded gates rather than the free flow of information that's, I think, done so much to transform society and our lives in, uh, in recent decades. 
The second principle that you identify in the paper is about trust. And you write that there's a, a sort of a deficit of trusts that exists in terms of how people interact with platforms right now. And you suggest that part of what might help mitigate this is increased transparency and process. Can you talk about that a little more? Like what what transparency and what sort of due process is Twitter lacking in that you could enhance that could help develop more trust? To, to start with transparency, what transparency do you think Twitter should provide that would make users trust the platform more? Well, th- this whole issue was something that um, Jack Dorsey, our CEO, spoke about in his congressional testimony um, when he kind of highlighted this this trust issue as being something that is undermining both industry and institutions. And transparency is a really good example of how you can you can be transparent in a way that puts more data into the public domain. But the question of how you are transparent to enable things to happen. And so I think, you know, a good example here is, is it's, it's not just about being transparent that Twitter uses a ranking algorithm on our home timeline. It's about giving people the control over that algorithm and the choice if they want to have a timeline that's ranked by the algorithm or in reverse chronological order. And so I think that's why transparency is not just about giving people more data. It's actually about enabling people to have more choice, more agency. And so that that flows into a lot of work that we're doing around things like open standards, where you know Project Blue Sky is thinking about the long-term ability for people to have more choice, more agency, both over algorithms within services, but also between services. And that that's not just transparency, that's kind of enabling with transparency. And I think that's how you know, Jack spoke about procedural fairness um, and how building trust in our in, in our processes by sharing more with people about how we make decisions, why we make decisions, um, giving people the ability to appeal decisions. I think transparency is a is a really important part of building trust in all of those areas. And it also um, highlights the need that transparency can't just come from industry. You know, around the world we receive legal requests from governments to remove content for user data. And actually, um, much of the understanding about how these legal powers are being used comes from from industry. You know, Twitter uses a service called Lumen, uh, and a nonprofit project that makes available the legal requests that companies receive. It's, it's not used by everybody, but you know that kind of transparency shouldn't just be coming from industry. It also should be coming from governments. And we think that if governments are more transparent in how they use these legal powers, that will also build trust in those legal frameworks, which I think then raises the the trust in the whole internet ecosystem. So I want to dig into that, but just before I do, can you give our listeners sort of the elevator pitch version of what Blue Sky is? You referenced it, and I just in case people um, haven't been paying as, as close attention to this as, as you and I have over the past uh, year or so, it would be great to just sort of hear you sum up what it is. Sure. Well, well, firstly, go to at Blue Sky on Twitter and, and follow uh, the account we've just appointed, Jay, uh, the, the director of the project, who's going to work with Twitter, but independent of Twitter. So I, the, the best way to learn more about it is heard directly from the project. But the the idea of Blue Sky really is that you know so much of uh, the internet has become uh, determined by proprietary standards, proprietary data, where really as consumers, um, your choice and your agency is limited by being part of walled gardens and so blue sky is is thinking long term about how do we actually start giving people choice and control between services and also when they're using a service how do we give people choice and control over things like algorithms in those services and if you're going to have 
uh, that kind of competition, uh, that kind of innovation between services. We think open standards are going to underpin that in the way they have done in a whole range of of, uh, of other ways. You know, you you, you can resend, send and receive an email using different email clients, and it doesn't stop you uh, saying you can only send someone an email who uses the same service as you. And so, how do we take that that philosophy of open standards and actually build potentially build those open standards to enable? choice and competition and so that's the the project is as i say going to be independent of twitter they've already published um, a really uh, fascinating compendium of the work in this area uh, an understanding of how industry is also moving on this and long term you know twitter hopes to be a client of this standard um, we'll be using it but it's not something we're building for twitter it's being built in the open for uh, anybody and everybody to use hopefully Okay, so I do want to get back to the the transparency due process point that you raised because I couldn't agree more that trust is, you know, uh, maybe the biggest issue here in terms of what is lacking. Like I think that just the the problem is that no one really maybe trusts platforms to be making the rules in a you know in in the public interest or enforcing them fairly. I think that you know people all over the political spectrum uh, feel like they're getting hard done by or that the platforms aren't acting fairly. And so I guess my question is, you know, what transparency and due process is Twitter not currently doing that it should do? So you talked about appeals and and things like that, which you know does exist for a lot of Twitter's content moderation decisions. And I, I guess I'm wondering what would what would regulation change in this space, or were you just sort of saying uh, regulators need to be you know more transparent and and offer more due process to engender more trust in the system overall, or what is it that Twitter can do, and you know why do we need to wait for regulation? I guess would be the question. Yeah, so there's there's definitely different parts of this. I think some of it's regulation, some of it's services. For you know, actually at Twitter, we are still expanding the number of ways that you can appeal. So recently, uh, for example, we. We have machine learning that proactively detects certain types of media and will put a, a warning message on that media saying, this may be sensitive. Are you sure you want to see it? Um, we've actually only recently launched an, a, an appeal process for that machine learning process. You, you've also seen when we were looking at how the image cropping algorithm was working on Twitter, we decided that, that actually one of the things there was to learn from the bug bounty community and actually go out publicly with details of our model and actually invite in people. So that's a, a very different form of, um, of transparency, actually enabling people to test our systems. But again, um, something that was relatively new, uh, it was the first time we tried it at DEF CON this year. So there's still, I think, a lot of ways where we can innovate in transparency and innovate in building procedural fairness into our services. And, and obviously, as the, the long-term direction of travel where more uh, technology is used to detect content to organize content that introduces more opportunities where people should have the ability to appeal decisions whether they be made by a human or an algorithm and i think in in the governmental space there's also uh, you know the, the tension that's often talked about in terms of illegal content versus legal but harmful content and i think there's also a question mark around what often happens right now is that the, the legal request will go from a government to a service provider, and the person who posted the content is often not part of that procedure. And so as governments build out um, a broader range of powers, we think one of the things that's also important is having the people who are posting this content, the citizens of those governments, being in a position to actually be part of that process. And so that's something we already do, for example, in uh, in the case of, of 
content requests and, uh, and user data requests, we always seek where possible and appropriate to notify the person affected to say, hey, we've had this request. You may want to take action, but I think that's a good example of where is it appropriate that that notice is coming from a service provider rather than uh, the government and offering an opportunity to be part of the judicial process rather than uh, it coming from a discussion with the service provider who received the legal notice. So let's talk about the third principle, which has has uh, gotten a, a lot of attention, the topic that it's on, which is uh, recommendation and ranking algorithms. And one thing that jumped out at me here in the paper is, I'll just read a, a brief quote, well, algorithmic transparency is an important part of deepening understanding of how these systems work, both in terms of process and training data. The focus on source code for algorithms, a literal interpretation of the phrase algorithmic transparency, offers flawed and unclear benefits. Well, in a limited context, this may provide a small, highly technical audience with insight. It does little to change the experience of people online. So talk us through that a little bit. Like, why is why is algorithmic transparency in that sense different from transparency generally? I mean, you you put out or Twitter puts out reports, transparency reports regularly that I don't know how many people read them, but, you know, Evelyn reads them um, and, and I read them. And that is valuable, even though every Twitter user is not paging through them. So why is transparency not useful, even if it's if it's just for a few experts? So uh, this is this is a really good example of how striking a balance between informing the public um, and informing the technical community is very important. But I think one of the questions here is what's the ultimate aim? And I think in the space of, of algorithms and the the discussion that's happening around the world around them is if you were to ask uh, someone using a service, you know what's more useful to you a page of code that tells you how an algorithm works which you can't recreate because the data that sits behind it is proprietary and part of a network and involves other people or control over that and ultimately choice and um, potentially between those algorithms that question of how we empower people is is sort of at the heart of this and i think it goes back to this idea of transparency isn't an end in of itself it should en- it should enable other things that are are useful and valuable to people. And so that's why I think algorithmic transparency is a, a laudable goal. And it's important to understand bias. It's important in the kind of ethical AI work that our meta team is doing. But the the practical experience, to your point, the majority of people who use services, what will be valuable to them? And I think that's where the, the question, again, this is a good example of what works for policymakers versus what works for the public, is actually giving people who use services like Twitter, choice and control, and they actually just don't want this algorithm on. That doesn't require technical knowledge, and it is empowering. And so I think this is a, a good example of how are you building policy solutions that are focused on the technology, or are you building policy solutions that are focused on people? Okay, so let's talk about this idea of algorithmic choice then and Project Blue Sky, because the idea of allowing people to choose between different ranking algorithms and the way that their their feed works is obviously uh, intuitively appealing. You can see why different people might want to sort of highlight different things in what they see. Um, but to play devil's advocate, I think 
generally the push over the last half decade of the tech clash has been people wanting platforms to play a greater gatekeeping role, not a lesser one. So, you know, the idea of uh, platforms completely hands off, you know, Twitter's iconic statement of the tweets must flow, that sort of has become, has fallen out of favor and that platforms need to get more involved and take more responsibility for their services. And I guess the downside of choice is that people might choose badly. So you could imagine people choosing, um, a QAnon ranking algorithm or, you know, uh, one released by, I, I don't know, uh, the KKK. Like, I just, you know, when you relinquish power, people can choose uh, what they want and it won't, that won't necessarily be positive. Now, there's obviously a trade-off there between centralized power and, you know, gatekeeping. But I'm curious how you think about that trade-off and whether it isn't just a little bit of uh, when you give power back to users, you're kind of uh, maybe sidestepping the responsibility to step in as a platform um, and mitigate the harm that your product might cause. Well, Evelyn, if I, if I, if I can paraphrase one of your tweets, I think the, the idea that oh, everything, okay. is a con- everything is a content moderation decision <laughs> is, is rapidly approaching this conversation. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, decentralized systems, the, the, the choice and control over things like ranking algorithms doesn't remove a content moderation process, it changes it. And I think long-term, this is something that Jack spoke about in, in his testimony, is moving the conversation away from kind of does a piece of content exist somewhere on the internet and more towards, particularly as the, the amount of content continues to grow, it is going to be about how visible is that content? Did people see that content? And the the exposure of that content. And so we've recently, uh, in the last version of the Twitter Transparency Reports, thank you for the the plug, we started disclosing uh, for the first time impressions data. And so looking at the content we'd removed and how many people had seen it. And I think when you start introducing choice and you start introducing control into these systems, those questions of what harmful content are people seeing are still highly relevant. It's just that the the levers that a service like Twitter may have may be less focused on content removal and more focused on the kind of the core protections and proactivity of limiting visibility of certain types of content. And you're absolutely right. The 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 core question that we're often going to get back to here, we say this in the paper very clearly, there is a big gray zone of content that is legal but different people have different opinions about how harmful that content is. And so one of the things we say in the paper is that it's imperative policymakers, when they're writing uh, regulations and law discussing content, are really clear about the content that they intend for this to apply to. And I think it goes back to a pretty fundamental question of, of democratic kind of norms, that those questions should be answered by uh, lawmakers in legislation. They shouldn't be left to either services to second guess or regulators to kind of decide at a later point without democratic participation. And that's something that I think this trend of of hard questions about the types of content being discussed and the remediations required increasingly being pushed to services um, because the, the very questions that they involve are so hard that there's not always a, a political incentive to address them head on while passing new legislation and regulation. Principle four that you note in the paper is about competition. And you write... A less competitive internet trends toward a less open internet. And I wanted to drill in on that because, you know, Twitter often will get talked about alongside Facebook and YouTube. But as far as size goes, with all due respect, you're actually pretty tiny by comparison. So how how worried are you about regulators passing new regulation, demanding things like, you know, a level of transparency and due process that Twitter just 
doesn't have the resources to comply with, well, you know, Facebook and Google, it might just be a drop in the bucket. Is that, you know, something that keeps you up at night? That's exactly one of the underpinning concerns that we raise in the paper is this idea that if you regulate with the largest companies in mind, and in in some cases, design regulation around them, don't be surprised if the future of the internet ends up looking a lot like those companies that you shaped regulation around. And so I think it's really important. Um, you know, Twitter, small and perfectly formed as it is, isn't the same size as you know Google's, Facebook's, Apple's, Amazon's of the like. But yet we're often talked about in the same breath as being, you know, part of the sort of that, that well, <laughs> in some conversations, it feels like that is the quote unquote, the internet. So actually making sure that policymakers are thinking through not, certainly not just services like Twitter, and you know we say in, in the paper that this is actually a this is way bigger uh, than any one company, and certainly uh, way bigger than, than than Twitter, is to think through those impacts on competition innovation. If you're starting a company that could be in 10, 15, five years, the next big service in a particular field, be it video sharing, social networking, uh, search, whatever the ability to start scale those businesses is impacted by regulation that you draft thinking about the big players today. And I think that is something that we're we're very concerned about and have been speaking about to policymakers around the world. And and also it's one of the reasons why we we wanted to approach this as a principle braced document rather than pointing to any one particular law. Because I think there's a there's a concern. I think it's not unreasonable that um, you know, sometimes the conversation about we think X law should be regulated is in part motivated by commercial self-interest. And we wanted to have the public policy conversation, not a pros and cons of reforming any one particular law conversation. And that that is because these issues go way, way bigger than just uh, Twitter's commercial interests. And they do speak directly to the future of uh, the open global internet. Okay, so you know that I can't uh, move on without asking you about the last paragraph under this principle because it's my favourite topic, and that's talking about technology sharing between platforms. So the paper says that content moderation technology is one of the most significant barriers to entry, particularly as regulators set ever stricter requirements on the time taken to remove harmful content. And I think this is something that regularly goes underappreciated in this context is that, you know, as bad as artificial intelligence tools are at places like Facebook and YouTube and as, as, as bad of a job that they do, uh, in some ways they're probably the best at this kind of thing because of the sheer data and resources that they have to make these tools. And the way that that plays out then is if you impose these, uh, you know, really uh, stringent requirements, um, the smaller platforms aren't going to be able to comply and the big platforms, again, uh, will be able to. And I'm just wondering what you see as Twitter's role here, what kind of technology sharing you envisage and whether Twitter is one of the sharees or the sharers of the of the technology. Like, are you asking in this principle for people to, to, to share and play nice or are you concerned about, you know, other platforms that don't have access to these tools? All of the above. Um, <laughs> the um, scale is a competitive advantage when it comes to building uh, machine learning models, AI systems that are going to detect content which is harmful, but also in, in even at Twitter's scale, something that might happen very, very rarely. And so to build models to try and detect that kind of content, you do need access to content. So the, the first piece of it, and I think this, is, this goes to the heart of uh, some of the policy tensions that we often see, is in this kind of area, industry collaboration is essential. Uh, the sharing of information, the sharing of training data is absolutely essential to enable a broad range of services to have access to the essential 
infrastructure and data to build and use models that help them detect harmful content quickly, which is the objective that policymakers are focused on. At the same time, we're also hearing about, you know, I think you, you yourself have written about concerns about content cartels. We're seeing people saying that actually tech companies should be collaborating less. They're raising concerns about these issues. And so there's a real need to reconcile those two policy objectives of having a competitive ecosystem, but also on something like um, detecting harmful content. How do you actually expand the collaboration? So Twitter, um, one of the things that we started doing is working directly with with small and big companies in the terrorism space, for example, when we remove a tweet and it links to something like a PDF of a manifesto, um, actually telling the company, hey, we've just removed this tweet. It links to your service. You should have a look at this because if you remove it at source, all the other links to that piece of uh, terrorist propaganda on the internet then don't work. And that's far more effective than trying to find all those individual links and move them one at a time. And we've shared more than 13,000 URLs through that program. So there's definitely a collaborative way you can do there. There's also the the legal framework. And this is is actually as much true as for collaboration with academics as it is between companies. But the, the legal frameworks that govern content that isn't public. So you remove content because it violates a policy. Um, in some cases, if you take um, child abuse material, you notify the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And then that content, in some cases, can be used to help build your ML and you can store that content. In other cases, because of legal frameworks, you you can't store that content, you can't retain it. And then you're not able to share that content with other industry peers. So the, the legal framework around how removed content is treated, both in terms of individual companies storing it and using it to develop their own technology, and also that content potentially being shared with third parties, be they academics or other companies, that whole legal framework, actually, um, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism Legal Frameworks Working Group report is worth a read on this because that that goes straight into the heart of some of these issues and uh, it, it impacts every sector of the industry. And actually, if we can resolve that, you could enable a significant amount of collaboration uh, and a significant amount of independent research into the types of content that companies are removing. All right. So your last principle in the report is that, and I'm quoting here, content moderation is more than just leave up or take down. This is music to Avalon's ears. Regulation should allow for a range of interventions while setting clear definitions for categories of content. So Twitter has been sort of publicly experimenting with a lot of different kinds of doing this, you know, outside this binary of of taking down and, and leaving up. I think one uh, attempt that listeners might be familiar with is the little message that will pop up saying that this conversation that you're about to enter may be intense, which I, I have enjoyed seeing on my feed. So how are you finding these measures so far? Are they effective? This is exactly the reason for running the experiments. I think there's a you know, certainly, uh, I've been at Twitter seven and a half years now. And when I joined, the, the conversation was really basically, if content is problematic, remove it. And that, that was the conversation we had. And over time, I think the conversation has matured, but also the service has got more complex. So we've, we've introduced features like audio spaces. We've introduced working with creators to look at monetization. And so as you broaden out the, the complexity of the service, you introduce new rules for specific things. How do you have a proportionate range of interventions and also intervene ideally before people break the rules? And so, you know, in some cases, uh, thinking of how to slow the spread of misinformation 
we experimented with asking people, are you sure you want to retweet this before you read it? Um, in the case of, of toxic conversations, as you mentioned, we've been experimenting both with the, the, the label that you uh, discussed, but also um, actually telling people, hey, you're about to reply and the reply you're going to send might be considered hurtful. Would you consider rewriting it? And so there's, there's different ways you can intervene that both ideally reduce the prevalence of harm in the first place by asking people to reconsider. But then also when harm does occur, having a broader range of, of interventions. So it could be a warning label, it could be a timeout, it could be removing access to a feature, but still allowing someone to have an account. All those different interventions are interesting and useful ways to try and improve the overall health of the platform. And I think one of the, the important things we want to protect as policymakers are, are drafting new rules is protecting that ability to come up with innovative and, and different ways of trying to improve behavior rather than focusing on this. If it's bad, you must remove it. Because I think as, as, as Evelyn has, has pointed out on many occasions, you know, getting people to agree on what's bad is really, really hard. So as you mentioned earlier, you've put together this report as focused on principles, sort of high-level ideas rather than specific laws. But I do think that one of the difficulties in this space is often translating these sort of high-level principles into concrete regulatory reform. And I have to say, the report is, I would say it's dense. Um, there are definitely points where I had to read things, you know, maybe a couple of times to figure out quite what you were saying, perhaps because you're trying to communicate a lot in a very short space. So how much direction do you see yourself giving lawmakers? Are you sort of pointing them in the right general direction and giving them space to figure the rest out? Or is there an expanded version of this report sitting in your desk drawer with lots and lots of detailed bullet points about the specifics of, you know, what you think regulators should do and how they should do it? Well, that's, I think I think it's uh, it's more a Google Doc with lots of comments than a draw. But yeah, the, um, you know, the, the discussion around which things to prioritize how the principles came together, the content that goes in the paper was something that we discussed with a, a whole range of stakeholders. And the, the the important thing, I think, for the paper is that it recognizes that, you know, no two jurisdictions are the same. In, in different countries, policymakers have different concerns, different focuses. Actually, one of the, the things that we, we really, uh, at the heart of the paper is is a call for a conversation to agree on what the problem we're solving is before we try and design solutions. Because I think often... Um, in, in some of the policy debates, there's been a desire to say we've we've settled on the solution and it's going to solve all of these problems, and we haven't perhaps been good enough at scrutinising how effective those policy interventions will be. So, for us, we're having these conversations in countries around the world with with civil society and policymakers around the world, and and the focus will be different. Um, and so, you know, whether it's the the UK Online Safety Committee or in Australia or Singapore or in the US, you know, as we're writing submissions to different inquiries, different committees, different hearings, you will see different emphasis coming out because in different countries, they're trying to solve different problems. And so the, the policy solutions are going to be different. And so our engagement is different. The principles are intended to give people a, a way of looking at this from a global lens, but hopefully informing those specific conversations that are happening as we give more, more detailed feedback. And going forward, I think you know, certainly from our point of view, the ambition to continue adding adding detail. And as these, these ideas and these principles evolve and we hear feedback, sharing more of our work in the open, because ultimately these are these are conversations we're having with, with lawmakers. And we think it's important that people know what we're saying in these in those meetings. 
So one of the most interesting sentences in the report to me comes from the introduction where the paper says, the risk that the rhetoric of policy and language of law will be co-opted and weaponized by those seeking to usher in an age of techno-nationalism is real. And I'm kind of obsessed with this, this concept. So I assume that what you're getting at there is that the rhetoric used in Western democracies when they pass laws or talk about problems with the internet can and often actually is used to justify repressive measures in authoritarian regimes. So, you know, to give a few examples, Germany's NetzDG law um, has been used as a model for authoritarians that want to impose the same sort of very short time limits on platforms to take down content that they don't like that Germany imposed in that law. Uh, Russia points to America's actions and complaints about foreign interference to justify shutting down uh, certain content in in Russia. Dictators everywhere co-opted President Trump's rhetoric about fake news, but also, you know, lots of Western media and and other countries' public concern about disinformation and fake news as well. So we, we definitely see this dynamic where, you know, once countries like America and the UK in Germany start talking about problems, they get picked up for other ends by authoritarians. But I'm curious what the answer to that problem is, because I think about this a lot, because the answer cannot be uh, that Western governments should not regulate and sort of turn a blind eye to problems because their rhetoric may be co-opted to uh, nefarious ends. So what is that statement getting at and how should regulators think about that risk? Well, in, in, in any political environment, it's, all, it's always important to recognise there's a gap between the rhetoric and the law. And often um, the law is, is more thoughtful and carefully crafted than some of the political rhetoric that might surround the debate. Uh, but I think it's also important to note that this isn't kind of a, this isn't sort of two camps where you have authoritarian governments on one side and democratic governments on the other. There's a, a significant number of countries who, who fall between those two poles. Um, there, there's some countries who are democratic and also looking at policies that would impact internet freedom. The Freedom Online Coalition celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. And, you know, those governments came together because these these threats were something that they cared about. So I think the the important thing is both, it goes back to what we said about due process, uh, about procedural justice, is the setting a high standard means that if countries do then follow through, the standards and the protections are already in the law. So I think that's where uh, restraint around extraterritorial application, restraint around using employees as leverage enforcement, though those kind of things do translate very badly. And so not including them is a good thing to set a precedent. But also when processes like legal requests are included, setting a high bar for transparency, a high bar for the right of, of citizens to be involved and have a right of redress against legal requests also means that if people do then copy uh, and echo those laws, there's a strong basis to call out the lack of transparency, the lack of judicial process. And so a a lot of this is about making sure that policymakers set high standards in these areas. And then in those international fora, uh, be it the the Internet Governance Forum, the UN, forums like the, uh, the Freedom Online Coalition, that they're able to then have a conversation and draw a distinction between different models of internet governance and different models of of regulation. And the the paper hopefully outlines a number of areas where setting high standards enables policymakers to both address their very real uh, domestic policy objectives while setting uh, a long-term policy direction that supports and protects an open global internet. So what kind of reactions have you gotten to the paper so far? 
Um, well, well, it's, it's been called dense on a highly influential politics and tech podcast. So that was great to hear. Um, the um, no, it's, it's been. I think policy papers, like this, are never going to uh, grab headlines, and they're not meant to. They're meant to be part of a conversation. And I think you know, it was great that the, the, the first few days we had a space on Twitter with the Danish tech ambassador, with Eileen Donahoe from Stanford, Elena Polyakova from uh, the Center for European Policy Analysis, and Berhan Nye, who brings an amazing perspective uh, of the global ramifications of these discussions. And the value is, is having those people having the conversation, and they'll then go and have conversations. So it's been, it's been really great to hear how people have already found the principles useful in you know, particular conversations. And we've had governments reaching out and saying, actually, this is clearly been approached from uh, not from just a company's kind of self-interest, but actually trying to solve some of the policy problems. So that's been really great to hear the collaboration. And I don't know, I've, got, I've, got, I've got two hearings in the next two weeks. So I guess uh, we'll, I'll get a very real temperature check uh, when, I, when I go through those as well. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the temperature check. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Ian Enright. Our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. You'll gain access to ad-free versions of the Lawfare podcast and weekly events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening.